0: Welcome to the portion of the service in which we open the Word of God together. It's a privilege to stand here before you again. And uh, I thank you for the welcome that you have given me and uh, the trust you've put in me to open the Word of God with you. And I thank you for how you uh, have Welcome to the Word of God uh, as I've spoken it. And uh, we are in Jonah 3 this morning. Jonah 3, and in these short 10 verses, there's a lot packed into it. Let's read the passage uh, before we uh, dive in. Then the Word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I will tell you. So, Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, "'Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown.'" And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast, and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself in sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from His fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He had said He would do to them, and He did not do it. Now, we're going to look at Jonah 3. With the assumption that you've read Jonah 4, this isn't like reading a novel where I'm going to spoil the end for you. Uh, Unfortunately, I won't be able to be here next week to hear Daniel's sermon on this. I was really wanting to, but I have a ministry commitment uh, uh, this weekend in Dallas, uh, this next weekend in Dallas. So I won't be here. I'm sorry. Uh, uh, But I'll be back at some point or another. Uh, <clears throat> now, we're going to assume that you've read Jonah 4 and you know what the ending of it is and that you know that Jonah still has the same bad attitude to God's call for him to preach in Nineveh as he did when he boarded the ship in Joppa to get away from the Lord from that responsibility. Our, for our wayward prophet Jonah, humility should have led to a declaration on his part if I could say what Jonah might have said. God has a plan to save the people of Nineveh from their disaster, and I know because He told me that He wants to use me to bring a message that will be His instrument in causing them to repent. I want to see that God is glorified among all peoples, so I'm happy that God would be pleased to show undeserving people mercy. But this was manifestly not... Jonah's attitude. The covers come off Jonah's unforgiving attitude only in chapter 4, but I want to think about humble obedience that the prophet is showing us the negative example of. Jonah is the negative picture against which the Ninevites appear as the positive picture. We need to see our own sins in Jonah. We need to point our blaming fingers at Jonah and back at ourselves. We need to look at the Ninevites and see how they cried out to God in their hour of need. We must learn how to be like God in our attitude of forgiveness. So we come in verses 1 and 2 to the prophet's second commission. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I will tell you. Uh, instead of against, you have to in a lot of the, uh, the English translations, so call out to it the message that I tell you. We see in verse 1 that God's word comes back to Jonah the second time, uh, the the uh, Uh, chapter 3 begins exactly the same way the the book began, and this is an expression of God's mercy and compassion to Jonah, the very sort of mercy Jonah is unwilling to extend to the Ninevites, that nation of wicked and violent war criminals. But now Jonah obeys. So, verse 3, Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord." So we hold our breath as verse 3 opens because it starts the same way as in the first chapter, Jonah got up. In chapter 1 verse 3, though, it says, Jonah got up to flee, but our text here says, Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to His word, according to Yahweh's word. so. Verse Chapter 3, verse 3 reads the way chapter 1, verse 3 should read. He's obedient, but he's still nursing hatred in his heart for Nineveh. And why not? After all, Assyria was famous for its cruelty and brutality against other nations. Just think of the worst war crimes you've ever heard of. In any conflict, and multiply it by whatever power you want. And that'll give you a good idea of what the Assyrian nation was like. Verse 3 says Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. The narrator pauses the forward progress in the second half of verse 3 to give us supplemental information about Nineveh. English translations say that Nineveh was a great city, as we've always seen it called throughout the book. Now, I don't want to get lost in the Hebrew language details here, but saying that it's great in Hebrew refers more to Nineveh's importance than it does its geographical size the point is that the city is important to god and that its inhabitants matter to god enough for him to send a prophet to offer them rescue now it was a great it was a big city it has a great population but even more importantly god cared about it That's what the great city means. And so there's uh, Jonah's second commission. We look now at the prophet of doom in verse 4. Now, Jonah's message sure seems to be the bare minimum of words, doesn't it? We must admit that the book doesn't reveal exactly what Jonah was supposed to say. And we don't know if Jonah really said more than this. I I think he said exactly this. Uh, This is exactly what uh, Yahweh told him. I'll I'll explain that in a moment. The author reports only six words in Hebrew, six words as the sermon. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, that's eight words in your ESV. Just drop out the shall be and you got it. Yet 40 days and Nineveh. Overthrown. You can just hear Jonah spitting that, can't you? There's no explanation in his message about how to escape this coming, whatever it is. Now, You know that Jonah is a work that, that, uh, literarily speaking, uh, is really artfully put together, I mean, very carefully done. Uh, And uh, Jonah is constantly trying to trip you uh, because you think one thing and God has another thing in mind. Now, this word, nechpachet, overthrown, pictures a complete change of the state of things in Nineveh, overturned, if you will. Now, this could be a destruction of the city. Jonah's threat is that very soon, nothing will be recognizably the same in Nineveh. But you know, the word he uses here is not the standard destroy language you get elsewhere in the, in the Old Testament. <clears throat> you, always fi- you always find them burning things with fire. Everywhere you, everywhere you go in the Old Testament, people are burning things with fire, it says. Uh, and that's just the way you have to say it in, uh, in Hebrew. You go, is there anything else you could burn things with? <laughs> you go, well, not really, but that's the way they say it. And so, the last word of Jonah's message to the Ninevites, overthrown, actually could mean completely changed. You hear the irony in that? And actually, that's what it often means in other places in the Old Testament. It's really surprising. You just search for this word and you go, hmm, this isn't used of destruction anywhere else in the Old Testament. So, ironically, the prophet himself hopes Nineveh will be turned over in the sense of destroyed, but completely changed could have connotations of repentance. You see how Jonah is just kind of working this in? He keeps, he keeps using these words, and you think, one, they, you think they mean one thing, and then you go a little further in the book, and you find out they mean something else. You remember that in verse 2, Yahweh tells Jonah to preach this message. Go preach this message I'm about to tell you. I'm fixing to give you the words. And then we see him preach this strangely short message. It could very well be that he preached exactly what God told him to say. And God may have, in the word, overthrown the meaning completely changed. And Jonah doesn't want that at all. He wants the other sense overthrown as completely destroyed. But you know the end of this chapter because we just read it. God doesn't overthrow the city. Now, Nineveh is this three-day visit city, three-day journey city. And it makes us wonder why the text in verse 4 says, Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey, one day's journey, and he called out, Now, some see this one-day journey as evidence that Jonah is not obeying God completely. But it probably means something else. The fact that Jonah has only gone one day into the city reflects instead the extraordinary speed with which Jonah's message affects the city. The people of Nineveh see the urgency of this message and the need for repentance. And that brings us to the repentance of Nineveh in verses 5 through 9. And uh, this breaks into two unequal parts. Verse 5 is about the people's repentance. And then verses 6 through 9 is the king's response. So the first reaction of the Ninevites was faith, which the narrator takes... As the next step forward in the action, and the people of Nineveh believed God. That's a surprise, isn't it? I mean, that's why I paused there. I said the people of Nineveh believed God. Uh, it's uh, you can't hide it. Uh, the, the first word is believed in uh, in the Hebrew text. They believed God. They called for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Now, fasting and sackcloth are the way ancient Near Eastern people demonstrated how much they had offended God. Abstaining from eating and putting on sackcloth, usually it's a black cloth woven. It's a very coarse f- uh, fibers woven from goat hair and used, well, for sacks. Uh were usually what people did when someone died, okay? You put on this sack cloth. Hey, quick, what's the Hebrew word for sack? Sack, you got it. You look it up, uh, it's the word sack, yeah, okay. So at least you got one cognate word in uh, if you're trying to learn Hebrew. Sack, okay, well, there it is. Okay, so you use them for sacks, right? Okay, and if you've ever tried to wear a sack, you know that that's going to be uncomfortable, right? Now, the significance of wearing uncomfortable coverings goes deeper than just mourning death. So this is usually what you do when you're mourning somebody's death. But here, it's a deliberate discomfort to keep oneself alert to the need to call on God for relief. That's what fasting and sackcloth are about. All normal activities of life come to a halt to focus completely on the urgency of the need to turn to God. It's odd to see the Ninevites, those godless, wicked, violent people, the enemies of Israel and of her God, believing God about their impending doom. did not it? This is not at all what you expect. They're doing exactly what Jonah's country, Israel, is never said to have done, even though all of the prophets were always calling Israel to repent. And I'll repeat again the text I read last week, 2 Kings 17, 13, and 14, Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen, but were stubborn as their fathers had been who did not believe in the Lord their God. That is the story of the northern kingdom Israel and for the large part the southern kingdom Judah, right? Now, there are few good kings in Judah. There are few successes with Judah and, uh, and Yahweh, but Israel is almost uniformly bad. But now, having seen the general response of the people of Nineveh, let's look at the king's own response. The king's decree is in verses 6 through 9. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. You see that he is uh, engaged in humility and humiliation that begins and ends this section. In verse 6, the king shows his humility by taking off his royal robe. And in verse 9, he demonstrates his humility by saying, who knows? This shows humility because the king's hope of God's change of mind does not presume that God must forgive the city. See, human-centered thinking arrogantly expects God to forgive human sinfulness as though it's a human right. You know, when you, when you mention God judging sin, what do people do? They go, well, oh, God wouldn't judge me for sin because that's, that's against my human rights. And you have, to, you have to say in reply, uh, like, who gives human rights? I think it's God, right? See, the king's thinking, on the other hand, is God centered. And God centered thinking recognizes that all people fall short of the glory of God and deserve judgment rather than forgiveness. The prophet uh, Jeremiah says in Lamentations 3, it's of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because His compassions never fail. They're new every morning. And then he he turns to God and says, great is thy faithfulness. Great text, isn't it? You should memorize uh, Lamentations chapter 3. It's It's a great text. So, here we have a pagan king with God-centered thinking. In verse 7, it says, He issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, meaning, meaning throughout the city, right? By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that's in his hand. You know, his decree is comprehensive in three ways that I see here. It's first of all comprehensive in its origin since it is both from the king and his nobles. Secondly, it's comprehensive in its scope. The call for a fast includes abstention from both food, which is normal for fasting, and water, which is unusual. It's this is fasting 2.0. This is, this is fasting turned up all the way. And the decree is thirdly also all-encompassing from the standpoint of participation. Even the animals are to participate. I don't think you can find a, a fasting scene anywhere else where the animals are told to participate. I'm sure, I'm sure the animals are going, what, why are you putting this on me I'm like you've never done this before. Uh, the decree also asks for genuine repentance. Verse 8 says, people are to call on God mightily. That's with strength, People are not simply to call on God once and give up, they are to persist in their call. And their call is not simply an outward change, but a real change in the heart attitude and treatment of others. Verse 8 then calls upon the people of Nineveh to turn from wickedness, their evil way, and specifically violence. This violence is said by the Hebrew text to be in their hands. Uh, Let everyone turn from the violence that is in his hands. The the palms of the hands, these are are the same things that you hold up to God when you say, look at my hands, they're clean, they don't have any blood on them. See, that's that's what raising the hands in prayer uh, is designed to do. And this is a real change because the expression indicates they're certainly guilty. The violence is in their hands. It's right there. They've, if you will, they've got blood on them. See, they're certainly guilty, and not just accused. It's not just, well, you know, we have this bad reputation as Assyrians of being violent, but we're really not. I mean, this is, that's just overblown, right? No, he's say, when he says, it's in your hands, it means they're really guilty. They're, they're not just accused, and they're guilty of habitual, ongoing, interpersonal violence. It's not like there's no violence in our nation or other nations, is it? Uh, and I'm, now I'm being sarcastic. but You know, there's a very surprising theological sophistication in what the king says and it displays His humility. Verse 9 says, Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from His fierce anger so that we may not perish. Does that sound familiar to you in some way? Have you been reading the Minor Prophets? If you have, you'll say, hmm, that sounds really familiar. And you'd find those same words, the beginning of Jonah 3.9 is exactly what the prophet Joel says in Joel 2.14, who knows whether he will not turn and relent. Now, does that surprise you? It does me. When I read this, I go, wait a minute. The king of Nineveh is, is like saying the same thing that prophet Joel would say? Wow. It's the king of Nineveh speaking. And what's more, the king says exactly what the ship captain said back in chapter uh, 1 verse 6, so that we may not perish. The author of the book then has skillfully used the theological sensitivity of the pagans in the story to contrast Jonah's misplaced pride about the pagans deserving God's judgment. Isn't that great? Don't you just love the way the Bible puts things, and you see it in such beauty. So, Nineveh's repentance then is humble, genuine, and complete. Now, uh, let me just uh, pause for just a moment here and, and, and give you three implications, two really, implications of the text so far, I think verse 9 really tells us a lot theologically because he says, who knows? God may turn and relent. See, the first implication is that human beings cannot presume on a holy God. Uh, That means that the Ninevites can't presume and subtext here is Jonah can't presume either. See, deliverance from calamity is not automatic, but even uh, uh, and just as important is no living human being is beyond the possibility of repentance. See, Jonah doesn't recognize that at this point, or he doesn't want to anyway. He doesn't want it to happen. And yet here's the king of Nineveh <laughs> really showing more uh, theological brilliance, if you will. Than, uh, than Jonah. It must have really chapped Jonah. You know, I went to seminary, and this guy is... <laughs> you can just hear him, right? But the second implication... So, the first implication is that human beings cannot presume on a holy God, either direction. Either God has to forgive me, or God has to judge you. Right? Have you ever? Uh, yeah, I did that on purpose, right? You would never say... God has to judge me and He has to forgive you, right? You would always say it the other way around, right? Because you're a human being, okay? I'm I'm not trying to show you up here. I'm just saying we would all say that, wouldn't we? But you know, this chapter also strikes down commonly held beliefs that pervade our own age, the idea is that God is only love and compassion and would never judge anyone nor hold anyone accountable for sin. You've heard that, haven't you? Uh, Yeah, well, you know, that's an old one. It goes all the way back to Genesis. You shall not surely die. God holds sinners accountable. And He sometimes does it in this life when wicked people are killed in the process of committing a crime or when wicked nations suffer military defeat. But you know, the psalmists always say, why do the wicked prosper, right? So it sometimes seems that the wicked do prosper in this life. But make no mistake, God will judge all sinners. See, we feel shock and outrage at violent crime, for instance, or at atrocities committed in war, and rightly so. And all of society needs to do all we can to keep such things from happening. But the outrage that we feel at those heinous sins, the really big ones that make the news, should give us an inkling of the kind of outrage that God feels when people commit any sin, no matter how large or small we want to make it. God knows everything and He's always known everything. So he always knows everything that's going on, which includes even those little sins. At least the things that we would say are little sins. Romans chapter 8 shows us that God's holiness demands that the entire creation. now, Now, stop and think about this. God is so holy that the entire creation needs to be wiped clean and reconfigured because of the sin, one sin, of Adam and his wife. Now, why would the Ninevites believe? After all, I mean, you know, this this prophet shows up from another country and says, you are going down, right? Why would they believe him? Well, if we look back to chapter 2 and think about the suffering, Jonah's suffering in the belly of the fish would have given authority to his commission from God and his message. The people of Nineveh would have realized what Jonah had been through, rescue from certain death, some people would say actually death. I, I don't think so. I think it's it's very close to death. Okay. But rescue from certain death and a remarkable deliverance from the belly of the fish. And some people even speculate this might have changed his outward appearance in some way. I don't know. I mean, you know, the text doesn't tell us. So I just you know I always say well you know you could be right. But the Ninevites would at least have had some respect for him and would have been willing to listen to this emissary of Yahweh. Something big had happened to this odd prophet which had caused them to take notice. So Jonah's suffering, even though it's (laughs) self-induced, right? We, We can't forget that. But Jonah's suffering is one of the reasons he becomes a pattern for Jesus' experience. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 40 and 41, Jesus says this For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man, that's Jesus, be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation, his own current detractors, and condemn it, for they, the Ninevites, repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold something greater than Jonah is here. Matthew 12:40 directly ties the 3 days and 3 nights of Jonah to the 3 days and 3 nights of Jesus time in the tomb. The much greater suffering and much greater deliverance from death in the resurrection gives Jesus all authority for his message. And Jesus calls the people of Nineveh who repented at Jonah's preaching as witnesses against the unrepentant scribes and Pharisees who refused to believe. So what made the Ninevites believe? Well, ultimately we've got to say God's grace is the reason they believed. But if Nineveh repents because of this prophet who was swallowed by a fish and lived, How much more should everyone repent because the Lord Jesus Christ who died and was raised from the dead?" This is also a testimony to the superiority of Jesus' message and its power to produce repentance. So the theological question comes up in the Ninevites' response, are are these Ninevites saved? Eternally or only rescued from calamity? See the difference? Are they, are they saved? Are they going to be with God in eternity? Or are they just? is it just this calamity they, they got out of? Was their repentance one that turned into believing in and worshiping Yahweh? Now, uh, people are divided on this question. And, and I think Jonah doesn't assume that we need to know the answer to the question. But let me just... Think about it for a moment with you. People who say the Ninevites were only rescued from the threat of physical death and nothing more often point to several elements that are missing from the story. We have no indication of the content of their faith. The Hebrew text says only that they believed in God. The ESV says they believed God in God is is probably a, a, a better translation here. But more importantly, the book of Jonah doesn't say what they believed about God. And in the years that followed Jonah's career, Assyria was still the murderous, aggressive empire that it always had been. Now, just to put it in historical perspective for a second, we know that Jonah's prophetic career took place during the reign of Jeroboam II, whose reign spanned from about 793 to 753 BC. Uh, this is only a short history lesson. I'm not going to quiz you on this, so, so just stick with me for a minute. 793 to 753 B.C. 753 B.C., by the way, was the, the traditional date when Rome was founded. So, I don't know. A strange coincidence, but there it is. Assyria conquered and destroyed the northern king of Israel in, of Israel in 722. Now, you, you count backwards, right, if you're a B.C., because you're counting down to when Jesus was born. So about a generation later, about 30 years or so, Assyria was back on the rampage. Okay, It would be like if, uh, uh, if Jonah had showed up in Nineveh in 1982. and Yeah, he probably could have looked that strange, right? You know how things looked in the 80s? <laughs> uh, <clears throat> the big hair and the strange leather and so on. I don't know. No, it's probably not that. But so, you know, about 30 years later, okay, fast forward to, to uh, oh, sorry, 1992, okay, different set of strange hair, but anyway, uh, 1992, sorry, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not doing well with math on the, on the fly here. So, 1992, to, fast forward to now, okay, uh, there might have been a revival in Assyria, but now they're on the rampage again. So, you know, maybe about a generation. Now, it seems that God used Nineveh's repentance to delay Assyria's domination of Israel until just the right moment. See, the Apostle Paul in Romans 2.4 says God delays judgment to give people a chance to repent. So, we might see that happening here where the northern kingdom of Israel had more time to repent before judgment came in the form of the Assyrian invasion. So I think in the absence of more criticism of the Ninevites in the book of Jonah and Jesus' words about their repentance, we can assume that God in His mercy saved a generation of non-Israelites by His gracious intervention. Well. There's another, uh, there's another instance about a century earlier in which God threatened judgment and then postponed it because of repentance. Remember King Ahab? You may remember his wife Jezebel. But he received a, a, a prophecy. Now, he died around 853 B.C. And we received a prophecy from, uh, from Elijah that his whole household would be destroyed. And, and we read in 1 Kings chapter 21... Verses 27 and 28, when Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days, I will bring the disaster upon his house. Now, we'd be hard-pressed to say that Ahab was a believer in Yahweh certainly his wife wasn't, and he dies in the next chapter. But his repentance at least leads to a postponement of the destruction of his household. We just don't know whether Jonah's Ninevites belonged to the Ahab category or whether they belong to the category of people who lived with God forever. But the material point for Jonah is that God held back the judgment he had threatened on Nineveh. Anyhow, I like to think, because of what Jesus said, that we're going to meet some of those inhabitants of Assyria's ancient capital when we get to heaven. So we come now uh, to the last section of our text for God's surprising repentance. So now, God demonstrates to Jonah that he can do whatever God wants to do, including bringing Ninevites to repentance. Now, we've seen this coming. Jonah's been hinting at this all along that this was going to happen. But now it hits us with surprise, and it shows us what surprises Jonah and disappoints him and makes him really angry. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He said He would do to them and he did not do it." Now if you look back at your uh, text of verse 10, uh, they had turned from their evil way. Okay, If you write in your Bible, you could probably circle the word evil, and then circle the word disaster because it's the same word, it's the same word in the Hebrew text. This extension of God's mercy is offensive to Jonah's theological sensitivities, and here's how he expresses it. This word evil, ra'ah, has been a wordplay from the beginning of the book. See, evil, ra'ah, can mean wickedness, the evil that people do. Chapter 1, verse 2, their evil has come up before me. Their ra has come up before me. But it can also mean calamity. The sailors say to Jonah, referring to the storm, tell us on whose account this evil, Ra, has come upon us. And when it comes to evil, there's an even more surprising twist here because you notice these two words, they turned from their evil way and then we've got God relented. These are the two most basic words everywhere else in the Old Testament for repentance. So you've got shuv, turn, and nacham, which means to regret or to feel sorry or to change your mind or something like that. You've got both of them there, and the people shuv, and God nachams, okay, so the people uh, uh, turn, and God repents. Uh, Of course, it's one thing to say that people repent from evil and God repents from disaster, You see, but the word play here, we have to translate it, God relented from the disaster or something like that. People turn from their evil and God turns back the judgment that comes on them for evil. So the king's hope had come true. God averted the disaster He planned for Nineveh and it turns out Jonah's prophecy is fulfilled Nineveh will be completely changed. And it was. But it was fulfilled in a way that angers Jonah. The next chapter explore, explores Jonah's displeasure with God, withholding judgment on Nineveh. So, do you see the irony here? Jonah makes this prophecy. He says, Nineveh's going to be completely changed. And uh, God says, ha, ha. ha. Uh, Yeah, you see? Look, they were completely changed. So what can we learn from Jonah? What do we learn from chapter 3? Well, we can first of all uh, learn be like and not like Jonah, first of all. And the second is be like God. Okay, so let's explore that. Jonah 3.3 3 says, Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. So there are one or two positive things we can observe about Jonah in the book. The first is that he obediently went to Nineveh. The second time he had the command from Yahweh, and we all say, yeah, look, he should have obeyed the first time. Have you always obeyed the first time? <laughs> no, I haven't, right? Uh, no, okay, so, so you know, let's, let's not look down our nose at Jonah, but we can say, yeah, he obeyed. Another thing that we notice is that he took his message of salvation to a violent people. I mean, he'd grown up hearing about how bad the Assyrians were, and the Assyrians were doing bad things probably most of his life. And that's something. To take the gospel to a national enemy is not an easy thing. You know, just just think about for a minute taking the gospel to Iran or North Korea or someplace like that, that that the U.S. doesn't have very good relationship with. But, you know, that's about where our imitation of Jonah should end, don't you think? We need to keep from imitating Jonah's heart of hatred. We need instead to imitate God. So, be like Jonah in his obedience, but don't be like Jonah in his hatred. So, instead, be like God. Jonah should have been imitating God as God told His people, Israel, Leviticus 11.45 says, For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall be holy, for I am holy. Imitate God. Imitate me. Be holy because I'm holy. It's the same demand repeated in Leviticus 19.2. And you find this very text quoted in uh, 1 Peter 1.16. And Jonah knows, of course, the character of God, and he knows the history of Israel and how God had relented of disaster after the infamous golden calf incident. Moses is up on the Mount Sinai and they're down there making an idol and worshiping it. And look what Exodus 32 verse 14 says, and the Lord relented. That's our word, Naham. The Lord relented from the disaster He had spoken of bringing on His people. Same thing that Jonah 3.10 says, except this time it's the Ninevites. And in the next chapter, Jonah, the angry prophet, lets loose on God for being merciful. It's remarkable that about a century later, the words of the prophet Jeremiah read like this. Jeremiah 18, verses 7 and 8, if at any time I declare concerning a nation or kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy, not the words in Jonah, I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster, the evil that I intended to do it. So here's, here's God in Jonah 3:10 behaving exactly the way the prophet Jeremiah says God will behave. And Jonah's known it all along. Jonah will become angry. God would be true to His word and his own character. Jonah should have been rejoicing over God's welcoming and merciful attitude towards repentance, but he wasn't. He should be wanting God's grace to extend to others. The same second chance he gets from God, he should want to come to others. He should have been welcoming the repentance of Nineveh, but he has, from the beginning, been trying to sabotage God's work. So God's lesson to us in Jonah is just as fresh now as it was more than 2,700 years ago. And it is that attitude of joy at God's mercy that needs to take hold in our hearts. Now, we read from... uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 32, and then on into chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. The the chapter breaks were not in the original, right? Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The attitude God wants from us Christians today actually sets a higher bar than even He set for Jonah. It's the imitation of Christ. Jesus encapsulated this attitude in His instruction in prayer. In uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 12, He says, And forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And the one element of prayer in Matthew 6 that the Lord signals, singles out rather for additional comment is that one element in the prayer. For Verse 14 says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So in closing... I think this text teaches us how to treasure God's grace, and it shows us that God mercifully offers this rich treasure even to violent people and nations. Now, you have to admit, there are times when nothing can be done other than fighting. There are moments when the invading army or the violent person has to be stopped by force to prevent harm to innocent people. We pray God's help and immediate deliverance in such times. But I'm not talking about those moments. Romans 13 deals with that issue. So we've we've got a text in the Bible that will help us with that. But we're talking about avoiding the hatred Jonah harbored in his heart toward Nineveh. God wants him and us to rejoice in extending the grace of God to people like the Ninevites. Now we might be feeling like praying for God's judgment on other nations or their leaders, or even on other people. We can, and we should pray for protection from evil, that much is sure. But we might look at what's wrong with our own country and feel like judgment must be coming, the way this nation is behaving. But though our own nation and every other nation on earth deserves God's judgment, we pray for repentance and awakening for our nation and for other nations and for other people. Even those we think God should judge right now. God, take him out. God delays judgment to allow people the time to repent. What if someone had prayed about you? God, take him out. Uh, God probably would have said, well, he deserves it, but I'm going to give him some more time. So the kindness of God leads you to repentance. So pray for the repentance of the leaders of wicked nations. You may just find you're praying for your own leaders. Hmm. Jesus says, but I say to you here. Love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Who knows? God may relent and they too might come to know Him through Jesus Christ. As we said last week, no one is beyond the hope of God's mercy. And when His mercy is known this way, God's character is magnified and treasured. God is glorified when people come to know His forgiveness. We should be grateful for every morning the sun comes up when God's mercies are new that we've been given another day of life, both personally and nationally. The gospel message includes Jonah's message of destruction. But the way of escape, through also the way of escape through Jesus, a compassionate Savior, who will lead us to a merciful Heavenly Father.